Joe Rosenberg heard that music when he was spending, oh, five weeks in Israel. Yeah, I can't wait to pick this dear brother's brains, find out what the man on the street is thinking over there, get his insight to the headlines today, find out what the scuttlebutt is. But five weeks in Israel? Wow. Joel, of course, is a New York Times bestselling author of a whole bunch of books, both fiction and nonfiction. And we put the Damascus countdown on the right hand side because, uh, well, I don't know, you can either read the headlines or Joel's books. It's up to you. Sometimes they're one and the same. We've also put his website down there for you to peruse as well. Always keen insight. Five weeks. Joel, are you trying to make LA? You're going to get dual citizenship? What's going on, brother? Oh, that would be fun. Uh, well, right now we uh, just led a Joshua Fund tour. And uh, we had 244 people, mostly Christians, uh, but not all, from mm. all over the world. Uh, we had most from the United States and Canada, but it was exciting to see people from, uh, from Nigeria, from uh, Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, Malaysia, Germany, Mexico, uh, uh, Panama. It was really extraordinary, people from all over the world coming. And you know what's amazing? The first thing I do uh, the first night um, Janet is to, you know, we have an opening dinner, and I say, all right, I'm just curious. There's no right or wrong answer, but how many people have re- read at least one of my books? Okay, so it's, you know, 85, 90%, right? So then I say, so how many people will read my blog or get my emails? You know, again, most people. So I said, why are you people here? <laughs> and don't you know how dangerous this is? You know, so, and, and people fortunately laugh. But one of the things I'm encouraged by, Janet, is that, yes, um, even as I'm explaining to people every day that, that both the exciting things that God is doing and the people are doing in the Middle East, in Israel, but also the, the threats, the dangers, Christians still want to go mm. because they want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They want to do humanitarian relief projects with the Joshua Fund. They want to see the warehouse. They want to study the prophecies. They want to learn about what's happening, what God is doing, and they want to identify with both the Arabs and the Jews in the land. And it was an amazing time. So we had a two-week tour. We did an epicenter conference. Um, we did, had several days of board meetings for the Joshua Fund, and then we had a lot of meetings with our key allies. They're getting ready for what could, you know, again, we've said this for a long time, uh, that there could be another war coming. Um, Israel seems to be, again, moving back to war footing after mm-hmm. maybe six or eight months where things quieted. But remember, Netanyahu said it would be between spring and summer that Israel would uh, feel that Iran was probably getting, you know, to the red line. Now, that maybe that's off by a couple months, but right now, I mean, as we speak, uh, Israel's conducting a three-day drill that seems ripped out of the Damascus Countdown uh, novel. It, they're running a three-day drill on what happens if chemical weapons are fired at Tel Aviv, hmm. and uh, it's a huge national drill. And so these are the challenges, um, but it was amazing to be there that long um, and, to, and to meet with uh, so many key Israeli officials, Jewish leaders, and then, of course, to guide people, most of them had never been to Israel before. Wow. So you mentioned, Joel, and I don't think this slipped past anybody, that some of the people who were part of your group were non-believers. How do they react when you get into the prophetic part of your conversations with these groups? You know, I, I'm, I'm amazed that anybody comes on a trip with me to Israel, so that's the starting point. But then, yeah, it's interesting that people who, um, you know, they are not always from a Christian background. Maybe they read my novels as sort of Tom Clancy-esque thrillers, and they were just curious. 
some of them, honestly, are married to believers who their spouse said, we're going to Israel. Here's your bag. Let's go. You know, so some of them are, are kids, you know, teenagers of parents who said, we're going to Israel. I don't care. what. No, I, so I don't know. It's a whole range of, of people. Um, and then some people, you know, honestly, just varying points in their faith about, you know, some are, are strong believers. Some are, you know, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, but... So we, we baptize people if they, if they really are willing to give them their lives wholly and completely to the Lord. We, of course, we're teaching the scriptures at every spot. I, we talk about stepping into the story, and we teach the history of Israel, mm. uh, and, and of course what's happening now in Israel and the Middle East, and we talk about the future prophecies. I think the prophecies are the thing that draws people most. I think prophecy is generally so poorly taught or rarely taught in churches today, um, that people are curious. They want to know what does the Bible say about the future of a certain country, mm-hmm. a certain region, but what also does it say to me? What is God saying about my life, my future? And people, you know, are, are I think, more interested than ever. And one example, we take people up to the Golan Heights, right up to the border of Syria, now, I was teaching this year uh, from the Damascus Countdown book, because how could I resist? I mean, we, we taught, uh, I mean, not literally from the book, but we taught uh, Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 about the, the coming destruction, utter destruction of the city of Damascus. And I, and I taught verse by verse through those passages right on the Syrian border with the audience, uh, the tour group, looking at Syria right behind me, and seriously, you could hear the artillery going off of the Civil War. You could see the smoke rising. Damascus was just 30 miles away from us, and you could see it uh, right there. Now, there's, I, there, you really can't – I have never been able to find another way to get people's attention than to teach Bible prophecy right where yes. Uh, yes. It, it was written mm-hmm. and right where it's going to come to pass one day. Things like that are, are priceless. I, I just love helping people – see it and hear it, and I, well, I wasn't, you know, intending to take them really into an artillery zone, but, but that just happened to be the way the day was playing out. But we were safe. God protected us. And I always tell people as they, as they you know, at our final dinner, as they're leaving, so you lived, right? So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> people say, what are you doing? You know, while we were there, uh, Janet, there was a revolution in Egypt. There was a coup. I'm sure yes, you covered it. yes. We, but, you know, people get so focused on their day-to-day in the, on the tour that I had to tell them when we woke up one morning, by the way, there was a coup overnight. Mohammed Morsi, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, has been arrested. All the top leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood have been arrested in Egypt. The military's in charge. And people, you could just hear gasps. Because, again, you're living in the center of it. They know their families are tweeting and emailing them and texting them saying, what are you doing over there? Mm. But um, they were never in danger. But they really were living right in the middle of it, and it was really um, an interesting place to study the Word of God. And that was the theme, by the way, of our Epicenter Conference this year. And people can watch the videos of every single message for free. Uh, That's something new we're doing in recent years, not Mm. to Mm. sell a DVD, but you can actually go online, even with a mobile app, at epicenterconference.com. But the theme this year was the power of the Word. We often talk about prophecy and geopolitical analysis of what's happening in the Middle East. But this year we said, you know, the number one threat to the people in the Middle East 
is their absolute disconnect from the Word of God. Mm. They don't know that there is peace that passes all understanding because they don't know the God of peace, because they don't know that, that, the, that peace it comes from knowing God and His Word. So that's what we focused on this year. King Josiah, who at eight years old became the king, the son of an evil king, but at 16 he starts to give his life to the Lord. He, he, he discovers the, the Bible, the, the, the Holy Scrolls of Scripture in the temple and begins to hear them as it's read to him, and it totally changes his life. We looked at King Josiah's life. We looked at Ezra when the Jews came back from the Persian and Babylonian exiles and began to read the Word of God, just read it and explain it to the people and how moved they were and how they were moved to repentance. They just literally did not know God's Word. Mm -hmm. And then I taught on John chapter 1, uh, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And do we believe that God's Word really changes lives? A lot of Christians have have drifted from that belief in the, in the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Word of God to really change them and to change others, and they're drifting from, the, from God's Word. And so that was this year's theme at the Epicenter Conference. Mm. Mm, wow. You know, Joel, I, I just, I watch you in amazement because I have seen you uh, influence the powerful in government, both here and internationally as well. But I'm telling you, there is such a bounce in your voice when you start talking about the Word of God and its application to the present day and the anticipation in your voice of our King's return, knowing it, it's imminent. It might not be immediate, but it certainly is imminent. And to be able to connect the dots and to really understand that that's what we need to be excited about, that Christ in us is indeed and always will be the hope of glory, and that He is coming again, and that this stuff that seems so chaotic whirling around our head makes so much more sense when we realize that God is in control that everything he said has come to pass and everything he said will come to pass and how exciting it is to point people the way and point out the signs and say, so are you ready? Because he is coming again. Now, when we come back, because you were there, I would love to get the man in the street perspective. And I know what it's like when you travel and you move around, but because you were there for so long, you had on the television, you could see the newspapers. I know you, you were doing research all the time. You were checking the Jerusalem Post and Haaretz and everything else that comes out of there. And I want to know what Israel is thinking about the current unrest in Egypt. You know, I remember the Muslim Brotherhood over a year ago saying, hey, you know, if the Muslim Brotherhood has any position of authority, we're going to and consider that a referendum on the peace treaty with Israel. And of course, this idea of, again, Israel being on war footing. So I, I want to find out what, what just the average Israeli is thinking about all of this. And again, what we can be doing about praying for the Middle East. Joel Rosenberg is with us. His book, Damascus Countdown, right-hand side, where we put our resources, flash traffic, excellent reports, his blog, superb. And you can hear the Epicenter Conference as well. We'll be back. privilege it is to spend time with Joel Rosenberg anytime, anywhere, but especially when he's just back from five weeks in Israel. 
Now, this astute world observer and student of the word, by the way, that makes it a pretty interesting and powerful combination when you're both of those, really has some keen insights into what's going on in our world today. So I want to start first with Egypt. This is a neighbor to Israel, at least with Hosni Mubarak. He was a benevolent dictator. He was respectful of the peace treaty that had been brokered with Israel. Not so much with Morsi. He wasn't there long enough for us to see whether or not he was going to move aggressively against Israel. But surely it seems to me that Israel has to be keeping a sharp eye on what's happening in Egypt. What's, what, are you hear, what did you hear over there? Well, it's, there's really a disconnect right now between Israeli leaders and the Israeli people. I mean, you were asking sort of the man-on-the-street perspective. One of the things I found fascinating was how relatively seldom uh, the problems in the neighborhood come up in day-to-day conversation yeah. in Israel. I mean, if I bring it up, which I do, <laughs> then people have an opinion, but they don't I found that people didn't bring it up much. I mean, were they curious? Yes. They're watching closely. But do you know, there's so much economic growth right now in Israel when the rest of the world is stagnant. There's so much construction going on. There's so much construction, Janet, that they told me, uh, many Israelis told me, you know what the national bird of Israel is? The crane. <laughs> because you see them everywhere. <laughs> Apartment building, building. So it's not that... Israelis are living in denial, as it, you know, not to make a pun off of the, uh, the river <laughs> just south of them, but, uh, or, or I start slightly to make the pun. But, uh, it's, no, but they, they're watching, they're paying attention, but they're kind of going about their lives, and they just want to build a life for themselves and their families and their businesses. I, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum. That's the only word I can say, that mm. people know that there's a threat, um, they're actually glad about the coup overall in Egypt because, and actually they're stunned that um, Egypt's military stepped in and, and reversed an Islamic jihadist revolution. I mean, they just removed um, a really serious threat to Israel. Um, and how often can you think of in modern history has a military stepped in, in uh, or, or there been a coup at all in the Middle East that actually went towards the net positive for Israel. I mean, there are not that many Mm -hmm, (laughs) uh, mm -hmm. that you can think of. Uh, Usually it's the other direction. So actually people are heartened by that. However, you know, um, Israel has just moved missile batteries down towards the south because they expect the Muslim Brotherhood to retaliate, first against the military in Egypt and then against Israeli civilians along the Sinai border with Israel. So there's concern. And then, of course, in Syria, if you look to the north, people are watching that closely. They don't seem to want to talk about it much, but they, you know, there's over 93,000 people dead. They know that there are chemical weapons stored there. They have been used in what we think are small quantities. But the, uh, and so the question is, what happens next? And, you know, is, is it possible that, um, you know, those weapons are going to get used by Assad or by the rebels yes. against each other? And, and then how does that affect Israel? Everyone's on heightened alert, but for the day-to-day, most people don't want to talk about it. Yeah. The big issue remains Iran. Mm. And as I've written about on the blog, in, in, in my blog in recent days, I think the signs are once again Netanyahu is beginning to ratchet up the discussion that the world isn't paying attention to Iran, that Iran is using these recent quote-unquote elections and the rise of Rouhani as a so-called moderate, which is a joke, but... I think 
Netanyahu is, is saying that he feels like the West is just not paying close attention and that we're getting closer and closer to Israel having to make a decision to strike. Now, I know I've been saying that for a while. What often happens, though, is some sort of covert operation that somehow slows Iran down from getting close to getting the bomb. And so that's why, you know, we hear this talk of building from time to time that we're getting closer to a decision where Israel might have to launch a Damascus countdown-esque preemptive strike against Iran, and then it doesn't happen. That's not because there's false alarms being sounded. It's because Israel and other allies, theoretically, are using other means than full-blown war to get the Iranians to slow down you know, their uranium uh, enrichment and bomb preparation. So, but once again, I think that rhetoric is starting to build again, and um, I got the details on the blog, but I think that's something we have to watch for while the rest of the country is, our country, is focused on um, big domestic issues. Wow, amazing. All right, so, so many issues in what you just said. Let me go to Syria for a minute, because I know that the Pentagon is considering some options for Syria. This is, Joel, and I would love your insight on this, this is an untenable situation, because we know that the Syrian Christians are fleeing. It creates for them a Hobson's choice. Do they stay and view it as a fertile uh, mission field, or do they get out for their lives? The reports of people coming out are buddy Tom Doyle and and Joanne, and the things that they're doing, these people are coming out with post-traumatic stress disorder, that the West doesn't even have a clue how horrific this is. And yet if the United States steps in, really, what side do we go on here? Look, I am not in favor at this stage of the United States intervening. On a humanitarian basis, I I want to see us help the good guys. But I can't determine who those good guys are. I mean, there are some small factions of rebels that probably we would say, okay, we'd prefer them over others. But this is a battle right now between Assad and his allies Assad's allies being Iran and Hezbollah, and radical jihadists, uh, Sunni jihadists, like, uh, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood. That's the battle between Shia jihadists, Iran, um, the Assad regime, and Hezbollah, and, and the Sunni jihadists. Um, so who... There's no, there's no good choice there. Yes. And a billion dollars a day is what we're hearing from the Joint Chiefs it would cost to, to run a, a no-fly zone. And Listen, I don't want people to die, but I don't know who to help because there's no good options right now. So, uh, and I think the Bible does talk about, you know, Jesus said when, you, um, you know, when you're persecuted, he said you're allowed to flee. You know? uh, and so sometimes you're supposed to stick and hold and preach. Sometimes you are supposed to flee, mm-hmm. and so right now it's, it's a humanitarian uh, disaster what's going on there. I think it's going to get worse. I hope not, but I think it will. And let me just say this. I think it's possible that in the next, I don't know, year, 18 months, I can't put a precise time frame on it, Janet, but I think the nation of Syria as we know it, the nation state, will cease to exist. Oh. It, it will be an Iranian satellite. I think that's the more likely scenario at this stage, but we'll see. There may be twists and turns coming. Wow. Joel, keen insight as always. You never disappoint. Thank you so much. And I'm glad the Lord gave you traveling mercies when you were over in Israel. Thank you so. I already look forward to our next conversation with you. And by the way, check out Joel's book, Damascus Countdown. Visit his blog and his uh, information that he puts out about the Epicenter Conferences as well. All fabulous. My thanks to Joel and you, friends. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 